0: Hello there, Rev Divers. We've got another fantastic guest for you today. Today, we're talking to Jenny Jacobson. She's the senior advisor at Silverstone, which is a hub international. Company. But what's really most exciting about Jenny is that she works in the cybersecurity area, but from the operations side, meaning something we can understand a little bit better. And so we begged her to let us pick her brain today. And she actually agreed. Jenny, we're so excited to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. We Hi, are Jenny.
0: excited. It's, I mean, right now, cybersecurity breaches are happening almost daily or even more often than daily, it it feels like, and particularly in the healthcare industry, whether that's just because we're behind the curve or or for whatever reason, but I seem to, it seems to me that a lot of these are stemming from third-party service providers, like lots of breaches from from third-party service providers, and from a liability perspective, since, you know, you can speak to that realm, what does that look like for facilities? Like, how do they keep themselves safe From third-party breaches.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The bad actors have really targeted third parties and those service providers because they know if they hit that group, it has a greater impact than going directly to hitting only one organization. And so that's really made those third parties a target. Um, When we look at liability, what The general rule of thumb is is whoever collects the data is responsible for securing the data. Um, That doesn't mean that you can't outsource that. That doesn't mean that you can't use other third parties to host your data or um, as a software as a service. But it does mean that you have to take some extra steps to make sure that your data is secure with those folks. Um, So it's really important when you're looking at your liability that you have a vendor management process to make sure you're looking at those vendors so you know how they're securing your information and that they're doing it at a level that you would secure your own information. Um, Other questions that you want to ask that create liability is, you know, who has your data and where is it being stored? Around the globe, there's a lot of different regulations and rules about data privacy and protection so if you're using a you know a local company in the United States but they're storing and hosting your data in Europe you may be um, required to follow European data privacy laws so knowing where your data is can be a source of liability um, a lot of this can be, attacked, if you will, um, or addressed in the contract language. Um, Most third service providers are going to be looking at limiting their liability. So there's a lot of times nothing you can do about that. But knowing what the contract says and who has liability and where the liability falls is really the biggest part of that equation. Then the last piece um, when looking at liability is you want to make sure that there's a defined process if there's a breach. Um, so if that third party has a breach, how soon do they have to notify you? Who's going to respond and notify um, individuals if there's a, a legal or even an ethical duty to respond and to let folks know that their information was breached? So. Those are areas that we look at for liability when dealing with third parties. Like I said, a lot of times there's nothing you can do about the limitation of liability, um, but knowing where the liability is, is, is most of the battle.
2: Wow. That that's really, really good insight. Thanks for sharing that, Jenny. You know, we're also looking at, you know, a lot of organizations dealing with employee burnout, um, not just physicians, but C-suite and you know, the ancillary staff, um, especially you know, folks who are working um, and, and doing multiple jobs, wearing multiple hats, you know, if you think about it, and I'm sure you have thought about this, that that creates liability, right? Um, especially for our remote workforce, right? For the staff who are working in the office and maybe they keep their, you know, their, their username or, you know, their access up uh, over a long period of time. And, you know, you know, with, with the way that the daily operations work, sometimes someone else will kind of log in. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, opportunities for risk when you're dealing with employees who are kind of, kind of get into that point of burnout. Are you seeing that type of liability um, in the
1: industry? You know, what we see is really more of a shortage of talented IT folks. Um, And we've known that that the industry has been short on talent for several years. Um, And, With the current state of not only burnout, but just the the industry as a whole, if you will, um, we see people in IT taking other opportunities. They're not stuck in their job. They have endless opportunities. Um, As tools become more automated, IT tools I'm referring to, um, you know, more AI and behavior-driven analytics tools. You know, there's a lot more bells and whistles where it is more like monitoring reports and and checking to see if everything is okay, as opposed to um, maybe being in the weeds and actually doing cybersecurity like you once did in the past. Um, that's really burning out folks just sitting and, and looking at those lists. So where we're seeing that is that those folks are leaving the direct organizational companies that they're working for, which is then forcing our organizations to outsource those duties more than they ever have before.
0: Yeah, it's, it's causing so much strain on, on the industry, but also on you know, the other staff because you have so much productivity loss whenever you lose a, an employee who's been there for a long time, or, um, you know, I work with, with a group right now that is like, well, so-and-so always did it. And for pretty much every question I have, well, so-and-so always did it. Do you have a pro- process for this? We do, but. So-and-so has it or had it, you know, and there's so much loss there. When you tie that into things like this, this new term that I keep hearing, which is poor cyber hygiene, the impact is huge. And, you know, I saw um, health IT security was speaking just this week or last week, I think it was about the weakness of passwords and things like that, right? Just the length or how you were formulating those passwords. So when you think of like ideal cyber hygiene, like w- what comes to mind for you? Because this is a newer term for me, cyber hygiene.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting, um, an interesting topic across the, the field right now is, is passwords. You know, passwords are no longer that holy grail of cybersecurity like they used to be. Um, people are, they're tired of passwords. We're tired of changing our passwords. You know, I tried to order a, a smoothie this morning off of an app from my local juice stop. Um, and I couldn't even log in because I couldn't remember my pa- my password. <laughs> so I think we have burnt people out on passwords. Um, what we have seen and what the data shows is that passwords are important, but there's more important um, pieces to cybersecurity. So when I think of cyber hygiene, I think of it in kind of two different buckets. You have your personal cyber hygiene, and this is every employee has to be responsible for themselves and looking out for the good of the company. So they need to you know, think before they click. That was a big um, promotional uh, cybersecurity month slogan a few years ago. um, Knowing what you're clicking on, changing passwords, using strong passwords, not sharing your password, um, but also just taking responsibility to know that this is important and and what's at risk here. The second bucket would be organizational cyber hygiene and you know this includes a, a strong password policy Requiring passwords to be a certain character length, as well as changing them, you know, every 90 days or whatever that is for your organization, but it's a lot more than that. Um, we know that multi-factor authentication is one of the strongest ways to protect your organization, and as a part of that, is a password typically. Um, but there's also the other factors that even if someone steals your password, they can't get past. They can't get past your face identification. They can't get past your having your cell phone to actually accept um, and authorize access into a system. So you know, having multi-factor authentication in place at a, at a minimum for remote access to your networks, for email servers and access, for privileged accounts, for backup solutions. Um, That's where MFA is really, really important. Another piece of a good cyber hygiene is making sure that you don't have any open um, remote desktop protocol ports, so RDP ports. Um, When those are open facing and anyone on the internet can essentially access that highway into your systems, there's it's really hard to protect against that. So making sure that those are closed and, and cleaned up. Um, the fourth thing I would say would be having um, strong backups. What we are seeing is that the bad actors know that you're less likely to pay a ransom if you have a backup. And so what they're doing is they're actually accessing your backup first. They're copying corrupting, deleting that backup before they hit your network and demand a ransom. So making sure that you have a good backup that's air-gapped and um, accessible, and and most importantly, that is tested. If you've never test your backup, you don't know, especially when you're using a third party to to host that backup. Um, So making sure that that is in place. The next would be having um, strong solutions Um, to help you with your network and email um, monitoring. So these days, it would be um, endpoint detection and response software, next-gen antivirus, email filtration system to identify those, you know, maybe bad emails that are coming through your system to try to stop them before they actually get to your employees and give them the chance to click on them. And then the last and probably most important is just that continuous training. We know that we're only as strong as our weakest link, and so we have to continue to train folks, even at the risk of burning them out on that training. Um, so those, when I think of good cyber hygiene, that's that's what I'm looking at for our companies. And you know, Jenny, what's interesting is that we're seeing. Um,
2: throughout the the industry that email is is really becoming one of those high you know areas of of impact when it comes to the bad actors. So the advice that you've given is super helpful. I really hope that we as an industry move to multi-factor authentication, especially for email. I know for me, it's not something that's like high you know on my to-do list, but I do understand that it, it's very important, and it's one of those, you know areas of vulnerability that we need to
1: take seriously, right? Right. And you know, from a, a cyber insurance perspective, that is, multi-factor authentication is something that the, the underwriters have placed a very high importance on. And so if you don't have multi-factor authentication in place, the chances of actually being able to get cyber insurance right now are basically slim to numb. So and, yeah. So the, the the insurance market is helping put that pressure on companies to step up their um, their security measures, but they also don't want to pay for a claim that could have been prevented. And the numbers show that multi-factor authentication prevents claims or prevents emails from being hacked, which would then prevent a claim.
2: And Jenny, speaking of that, it's coming up, you know, we're the beginning of the end of one year moving into a new year, it's time to start renewing our policies. Um, It's it's also a good time for us to start auditing ourselves and thinking about the processes that we want to have in place for a new year to keep our you know, our patients, PHI, and then even our just our business, um, you know, information from a, a business continuity perspective, we want to keep all of that information secure. And we really do rely on our policies, right, our uh, cyber liability policies, our insurance policies. So having those strong relationships with those vendors is super important. We get, you know, this question uh, a few times a year, is it worth the expense, right, to, to have cyber liability coverage? And you know, when 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 we think about our rev divers, who are folks who are in you know the the financial kind of field and revenue cycle, can you kind of break down for us: Is cybersecurity insurance worth it? And you know, is paying a ransom worth it? You know, what should our listeners do when if hopefully, if knock on wood, they don't actually have to deal with this, but if they do um, encounter
1: something like that. Yeah. So cyber insurance is definitely worth it. It's one of the um, few insurance products that you're likely to use. Um, And it's come a long ways. I've I've been doing this for over seven years now and and focusing on this. So I've seen all the changes in the marketplace during that time. And it's a lot more than just an insurance product that you need after the fact. So carriers have really evolved into taking a more proactive pre-breach stance to help their insureds. And they're also taking more of a technical approach. So there's a lot of resources that they offer, either from the insurance carrier themselves that can help you prevent those breaches, or they've partnered with reputable vendors to provide um, those third-party services to you for a discount. Um, And if there's any space that needs a discount right now, it is for those outsourced IT um, services. They can get really, really pricey And it's definitely a hindrance on on our organizations when they go to implement different security controls. Um, But it's a lot more than just we have X number of patient data that was breached, and now we have to send out notifications. Um, The IT forensics costs can be outrageous in determining what happened with a breach. Your policy is going to pick up that expense. also business interruption, one of the largest expenses I see with our hospitals is if their EHR, EMR is hit, and they have to shut down a surgery suite, you know, how many days of that surgery suite being shut down, and then that those surgeries never being rebooked in the next, you know, three to six months, that's lost revenue. And that's lost revenue that's recoverable um, under a business interruption clause on your cyber insurance policy. So that can really tick up there oftentimes to the seven digit loss number. Um, so it definitely it definitely is worth it in my opinion. Um, our healthcare clients are our number one clients that I see that utilize cyber insurance. Um, so if, if you have not been hit by a breach, you probably know somebody who has gone through that process. Speaking specifically to the ransomware, um, I used to throw out a lot of statistics in the last 18 months, I've, that's, I've, had, I've kind of put that to the wayside because there's no central repository of claims data. Um, and there's so many different vendors who are helping with breaches, so many different insurance carriers, it's hard to tell if we have accurate numbers. But one number that I continue to see is less than 70% of people who pay a ransomware actually get their information back. So essentially a third of the people who are paying the ransom don't ever even get their information back. And this is becoming even um, more of a problem with what we call double extortion. And this is where the bad actors are getting in, they're copying your Uh, backups, and they're saying, okay, well, don't pay us for the unencryption code, but if you don't pay us for the data, we're still going to publish your data. So they're hitting you with that double extortion attempt. Um, Along with that, the Office of Foreign Assets um, Control, OFAC, in the past year has issued two different guidances reminding us that we are prohibited from doing business with people who are on their um, specially designated nationals list, their their blacklists. And over time, this blacklist has really grown to include folks in the ransomware gangs. And so anyone who does business with those folks, i.e. paying the ransom, um, can be sanctioned by OFAC and that includes the insurance carriers, that includes banks, that includes the organization. So we really have created an interesting um, tug of war between an organization who they need their information back to be able to operate or the possibility of having a a sanction from OFAC. So we haven't seen it affecting whether or not ransoms are paid quite yet. I do believe we we will see that um, coming into play or especially coming into doing a little bit more due diligence of who's on the other side of those ransom demands? And and can we say, you know, with a level of certainty that they're not on that OFAC um, S&D list? Oh my gosh, listen, (laughs) I will definitely be
2: um, replaying this episode because- (laughs) Right? Wow. Wow. I you know never thought that we could actually be sanctioned for paying a ransom, but I get it. I mean, everything that you said just it it makes complete sense. So really the the overarching goal here is to be proactive, right? right. It is to be proactive so that you you're not put in that position to make these decisions. Right? Well, Jenny, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This has been um, an enormous, um, you know, help to I think both and I, to our, our audience, our Rev Divers, you have so much experience and um, we thank you so much for your time today. Um, until we meet again, Rev Divers, thanks so much for joining us. Keep diving into those Rev Cycles.